To fuck around is human. To find out is divine. This is the I Refuse Podcast. Where are we going? We're going around Sheila Dixon's house for a wellness check. Welcome back, everybody. This is Mr. Fox, the I Refuse podcast. Today, we will be covering two matters currently happening in the last week and a half of 2023. This is part two of the art of storytelling. First things first. This is Mr. Fox. Allow me to introduce myself. Welcome back. This is season five of the I Refuse podcast. Today, we will be covering two very alarming things. One very close in proximity to where we produce the I Refuse podcast. One, Sheila Dixon. The second thing we will be discussing is... Taraji P. Henson's admission while on the press junket in support of The Color Purple that's due to come out on Christmas Day. First things first, a lot of us down on the Bird app are rather... are rather uncomfortable at what the rest of you, those in Baltimore, those in D.C., those that have a Twitter account, that have seen what was occurring during a Fox 45 Baltimore live broadcast interview with Sheila Dixon. During the interview, Sheila's voice appears to be hoarse and her partner or somebody out of frame is throwing clothes at her head while being interviewed and talking trash. Biden is hosting a town hall tonight centered around public safety concerns and how to get crime under control. City Councilman Eric Costello and mayoral candidate Sheila Dixon will join us on the panel as part of our Your Voice series and with a preview of tonight's town hall, Sheila Dixon is joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so what is it that you have been hearing from residents? I know you've been making the rounds around the city, but in terms of their biggest concerns and complaints as it relates to crime, and then what is your message tonight and to them about how we solve it? So there's three things. One, people don't feel safe. People are afraid. Carjackings, thefts, stealing cars, quality of life. And people want to see the presence of officers in their community, engage with them, walk in the beat, talking to them, getting to know the residents, and that's not happening. Give you an example. Yesterday, I saw police officers that were in the area, but they were in their cars out of the um, cemeteries, not doing what they need to do. So let me ask you this, is, is some of that police saying, you know what, we, we've heard it repeatedly, police oh, saying it, prosecutors no. saying, our hands are oh, tied, there's not much that we can do. That's 
part one. So during the course of just that two minute clip in the video in her window of the Zoom call, you know, former mayor Sheila Dixon, you can clearly tell that her voice her voice is very hoarse. She's got clothes being thrown at her. This first a shirt it looks like that whizzes by her head, causes the hair to be thrown off a little bit, and there's more clothes being thrown at her. Then she is at first keeping an eye on something that's out of frame. She starts to flinch and the interviewer continues on. But there's more. So there's three things. One, people don't feel safe. People are afraid. Carjackings, thefts, stealing cars, quality of life. And people want to see the presence of officers in their community, engage with them, walking the beat, talking to them, getting to know the residents. And that's not happening. Give me an example. Yesterday, I saw police officers that were in area, but they were in their cars by the um, cemeteries, not doing what they need to do. So let me ask you this. Is, is some of that police saying, you know what, we, we've heard it repeatedly, police saying it, prosecutors saying our hands are tied. There's not much that we can do. Even if we get out there. Okay. Uh, it, so uh, there's a lot of feedback there. Um, is is are, are you hearing my question? Yes. Is is it some of that police are feeling like there's nothing we can do because we can't hold them accountable? They're not. We can't enforce laws that say we can't talk to them. We can't do anything. Is that part of it? But we can hold them accountable. We can do something, and we need to. And our police officers have a responsibility to do things in order to assist. And we've got to do that. We have to step up. We have to try to work with different communities in our neighborhood so that we can do get involved and engage. So tonight we're going to be hearing from residents. We're going to be talking to them. All right. And we're going to, we, we, we hear that you're fighting through um, this thing yes. that's going around. We're going to let you um, conserve your voice and we'll see you tonight. Thank fighting. you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Better. Thank so there's three things. Safe. So there's three things. One, people don't feel safe. Different communities in our neighborhood. So that we can do get involved and engage. So tonight we're going to be hearing from residents. We're going to be talking to them. All right. And we're going to, we, we, we hear that you're fighting through um, this thing yes. that's going around. We're going to. All right. So here's the thing. The reporter or the interviewer that was part of the, the news channel should have cut the call short, the interview short. After that first piece of clothing came into frame, 
She should have just cut to tactical difficulties, made the bleep, you know, sound and all that stuff, and cut to something else. So we here at the I Refuse Podcast would like to know if you would like to join us to take a wellness ride around to former Baltimore Mayor Sheila Dixon, who I believe is going to be running again for mayor. Sheila Dixon, if you're out there listening, blink once or twice if you're under duress. You know, the last thing that Sheila Dixon needs, especially now that she's popped up into the public's consciousness and we're years removed from that whole gift card incident, which is, in hindsight, so stupid because look at look at what has happened to Baltimore since that incident. You know, she was the Baltimore mayor before the Baltimore riots, before Freddie Gray was murdered by the cops, um, before they the city paid off the family, before the issues with her her interim replacement, Stephanie Rollins-Blake, before the current issues we have with Marilyn Mosby. You know, just all kinds of things. And when we've hit a wall so many times and we've gone through a lot of things that i would have never guessed I would have gone through my hometown. You look back and you're like, Sheila Dixon wasn't all that bad. Like in the last five years, things in and around Patterson Park and Canton and Fells Point um, has gotten out of hand. But we got to be this this situation happening on a morning show out of Baltimore taking taking course in her own home very alarming very troubling by the quality of her voice it's apparent to us here at the I Refuse podcast that this woman has been arguing with this man for probably all week. More than just the past 24 hours. And I'm sure watching this, you know, some conservatives and so on and so forth who played a part Anybody that's played a part in ousting Sheila Dixon for the gift cards is probably looking at this like, who in their right mind would vote this woman back into office to take control of the streets and lead the war on crime when she can't even keep a safe house? Now, I'm no body language expert, but when I look at the couple's photo 
of Adele with her man, Rich Paul. She's sitting in a a wicker chair, like the old school kind that your mom used to sit in when she was hiding the pants, hiding the drawers back in the day. She's sitting in one of those while Rich Paul is standing next to her with his um, shirt unbuttoned, about two or three buttons, while positioned in front of a backdrop of graffiti and a nightscape, similar to, you know, those back in the day photos of your parents when they was out in the streets and they hit the club and they'd be posing in front of those um, curtains covered in graffiti. And I said to myself, oh, she's having a ball with this man. And he is wearing her little English muffin out. And then I thought, this is what Jonathan Majors probably thought he was going to have with that that white British lady that I would say most likely dead men was the cause. Then I moved on. Thought I was... That I was safe from my intrusive thoughts and the randomness that tends to coast through my mind. Now we're coming up on Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Like I said earlier, you know, every year since the pandemic has gotten crazier and crazier. And just when you think your bingo card for the year is full, the last two weeks are like, hold my beer. So here we are about four days away from the premiere of the theatrical version of the Broadway play, The Color Purple. Now... It's still on my list of movies to see. And I know that between now and probably mid-January, it'll be in select theaters. It won't be everywhere just yet. And I've seen the interviews that they've, you know, the the main cast has gone on and the main female leads and Oprah has gone on. And I'm hooked. I'm locked in. Saw the trailer. There was a time where I thought, okay, this thing is probably not going to come out on Christmas Day. Because at one point, the trailer was everywhere. And then all of a sudden, all the news and stuff died down. And I think that had to do with the the strike. But then all of a sudden, you know, the trailer started circulating again. Everything was on time. I saw some of their Good Morning America appearances, Good Morning Show appearances, and the Jennifer Hudson appearance, and I'm like, okay, I'm locked back in. So here we are, like I said, four days away. And first on IG, 
I saw one of the um, blogs, Neighborhood Talk, sharing a clip of Taraji B. Henson going into a, I don't want to use the word meltdown, but the interviewer asked her a question, I think, in regards to pay or something. And Taraji is struck and goes, starts to shut down and then goes into her frustrations with the industry and I believe alluding to retire, just leaving acting altogether. I'm going to play the clip in a minute. Now I'm going to play multiple clips. And where she's talking about multiple things. But here's one of them. That's acting business decision that you made. So whether that be representation Firing everybody at the cookie. Everybody had to fucking go. Where is my deal? Where's my commercial? Cookie was top of the fashion game. Where is my endorsement? What did you have set up for after this? That's why y'all haven't seen me in so long. They had nothing set up. All they wanted was another cookie show. And I said, I'll, I'll do it, but it has to be right. The, perf- the people deserve She's too beloved for y'all to fuck it up. And so when they didn't get it right, I was like, well, that's it. And then they had nothing else. You're all fucking fired. Get them, cookie. Get them. I mean, I'm going to say this, though. It took me years to get there because I did have a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. Baby, it's very real. You are the prize. Don't you ever forget that. You are the talent. You are their check. Don't ever forget that. They work for you. And if they're not, somebody else will do it. Was we getting tired of black women having the same story? It's breaking my heart. Like 20 plus in the game, it breaks my heart. It's like every time you achieve something really incredible, it's almost like the industry looks at it as a fluke. Like, ah, oh, that was like some one-time thing. So you fall back to the bottom, and you got to negotiate and fight tooth and nail to get what you made the last time when, where's my raise? I haven't, had, I haven't seen a raise in my income since Proud Mary. And almost had to walk away from Color Purple. Yes, ma'am. Who said what? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Because you know what? If I don't take a stand, how am I making it easy for Fantasia and Danielle and Hallie and, and, and Felicia? Then what, why, why am I doing this? If it's all just for me, what the? Why are you here? We are to service each other. God is very clever. He put us on this earth, and he made us all look different. He made it complicated. We need to figure it out. And we can, and we are. You have to look at, t- look at the glasses half full. 
always half full. And I'm really... 2018 was when I finally got a real quote. And that is the last time that I, I haven't gotten a raise since then. And every, each and every project that I have, I have to fight for that. You still have to fight. I have to fight for that. Yeah. What did that do to you? That's why I'm not excited anymore. It takes the It takes all of, it. of that away. And I know what other people are getting paid. What do you think that's about? It's about me being a woman and a black woman. I still don't think that this town um, respects what black women bring to the table. Now, let's be very, very clear and be very, very uh, aware that this conversation is not new. No, when Monique was one of the first ones to come out and talk about the disparity and inequality of pays and offers and opportunities given to her in comparison to her white counterparts who have not put in the same amount of time, who literally went from college to a couple of, you know, stand-up spots or, you know, comedy hole-in-the-walls to big tours and movies and getting 15 to $20 million paydays for one stand-up special. And then there was this whole mixed reaction to that. You know, those of us that are of the business mind are like, you know, it's all about how many butts can you put in the seats of these venues. But a lot of us forget that You think just because she's not on TV a whole lot must mean she's not doing any work at all. And then it's like, you're more acclaimed as an actress. You know, you got the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 2009, 2010, I believe, for Precious. And... You know, the Parkers was 15, 20 some odd years ago. The market has changed now. You know, Netflix wasn't around then. You know, this all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the conversation still needs to be had and there needs to be some traction when it comes to tackling pay disparity between, you know, what black women and black men are getting paid and, you know, this greater expectation from us to go above and beyond. And if you speak out about it, you're blackballed. 
so with that, you know, when the the first couple of clips, which were from the same, I guess, interview or podcast or whatever, where Taraji was talking about, you know, this is why you haven't seen me in so long and stuff. This is why I haven't gotten a race since Proud Mary. You know, there were other things that showed up in the room. You know, again, like Monique, the reactions to Taraji expressing herself and voicing her frustration in this industry that she's given almost 30 years of her life to is that, you know, it probably wasn't a good idea to go on this diatribe while you're supposed to be supporting the color purple, which has been a beacon and a history-breaking literary piece of work, film, story for the past 40-plus years. And... There are people out here that are pledging allegiance to respectability politics and responding with Monique's, you know, similar, you know, the parallels to when Monique was doing the same thing, making her rounds, getting on people's nerves. You know, people are of the mindset and the feeling that doing this now takes away from the magic and may ultimately lead to Taraji slicing her nose off the spider face. Like, you think the opportunities are minimal now. These people don't have to give you anything. And I, th- and I sat back and I thought, what a sh- pretty shitty thing to say. Um, because saying these kind of things doesn't make us any different than the powers that be. You know, we, whether you're an actor or an actress or you're working a nine-to-five job, or you're just a Twitter a Twitter user, you know, typing away on the keyboard. We all have to operate within the same system. And make do, give the best, give it your all. But there's nothing that says that we can't change the trajectory of history. There's nothing that says we have to stop and accept what is and shame people back into silence, gaslight people back into silence because we don't have time for this right now. Like look at look at your situation as you're listening to this podcast. If you're at a corporate job, right, 
you're at a corporate job and you've put in 15, 20 years at this job and it could be a sales job. It could be um, the type of job where the performance of your team influences your next pay raise or whatever. You're hitting those marks, getting awards. You're, you've made a name for yourself. Just about every hour billable or salaried that you've put into this company, you've put into this industry. And, you know, the results and the achievements speak for themselves at this point. You get to about 15, 20 years. And there you realize the last five or ten years, there's been no progress in pay. There's been no progress in development. There's been no opportunities coming your way. Then you start to look around those those last five or ten years. And realize people younger than you, people that are not black, people that have less experience than you, getting more opportunities, getting more pay. And we're not talking like, you know, a 10K bump. We're talking... We're talking at least two or three, four, five times as much money as you make. And, you know, it's one of those things where the inequality just comes in the the levels of appreciation. And a lot of us could come to the table and be like, well... Wouldn't this kind of attitude or this sense of entitlement that we're perceiving, the reason why they probably don't put her in more stuff, the reason why they're not paying her more? No. Because this disparity and inequality in pay has been a thing for generations. Man, woman, Black, white, black, not white, other minorities. Raji, Monique, both black, both women. Who are bringing forth, ultimately been saying the same thing about the same industry. They want us to do more, but pay us less. And this isn't a case of 
I'm on a show that's on a smaller network while you're on a show that's on NBC. We're talking about Taraji B. Henson that's been in movies with Brad Pitt, movies with Terrence Howard, movies by John Singleton, movies, let's see, by Tyler Perry, a couple of his movies, I believe. Is classically trained has limitless range and has played both supporting and leading roles and has been nominated for countless awards. Yet she is barely making what, 200,000? A movie, probably, if that. And we all are aware of the breakdown she does of how much of that she takes home after everybody else in her team has been paid. But, like I was saying earlier, just like with Monique when she spoke out, you know, the bias and the prejudices that came up into the room. Similarly, this is also the case with Taraji. And not against Taraji, but people are looking at Oprah crazy again. You know, a lot of people... have all these questions for Oprah like why it why if she is listed as one of the producers why didn't she fight for more pay and why didn't she you know put more in the pot to make sure all these women got paid handsomely and when I tell you the illiteracy of contracts, studios, unions, the concept of the flat rate, acting rate, left out. And it's like we just got off of a strike over there in that industry. You would have thought people did a little bit more research. While, you know, they were making tweets and hashtags and all that. There is... When you look at a show, you look at a movie, you look at a billing poster, all these kind of things that list credits. And you you get to the producers, the executive producers, and all those names and stuff. So, for the most part, the people listed under those those titles are primarily financiers of the project, right? 
Now, you need to understand that, you know, some of these big studios and big names that greenlight these projects or see it to that point of the process will not push it forward unless there's a big name or several big names attached to it. Now, whether you hate her or love her, Oprah is a big name, huge name. Um, You also got to keep in mind that some of the producers of the original film are also listed. I believe Quincy Jones is also a producer on this one. With that being said, they essentially just use their name to get to get it to the screen, which is nothing new. While we love Kelsey Grammer down, you know, Kelsey Grammer put his name on Girlfriends for it to get greenlit. That doesn't necessarily mean that he was part of every part of the process or he controls the creative content or, you know, he may... He may have some executive control, but he put his name and his production company behind Girlfriends to get it on to network television. So it's that kind of thing. It's like a vanity title. But here you bull daggers go in the Bird app. Coming at Oprah crazy. And it's like, that's not how that works. It's actually on the union and the studios and, you know, the actors and their team to negotiate how much they make. Like, And you don't even know if Fantasia, Danielle Brooks, Taraji Henson, P. Henson, and some of the other ladies that are on part of the cast what their negotiations were. And maybe they didn't even know that you could lowball your your rate up front with a percentage of the sales receipts of the movie. You know, get some back end revenue. And you can be set pretty pretty good. And Quasi's Cab, not a whole lot of white actors know about that. Now, that's not to say that Color Purple may pull in $100 million. But time will tell. You know, Color Purple, when it was on Broadway, was amazing. And who doesn't know the film version from the 1980s but you don't know what they all negotiated but what I do know is that people just could not wait to talk badly on Oprah so there is some people on the bird app retweeting Taraji's piece about, you know, 
not getting that much pay for the color purple, which was a small two or three seconds of a larger conversation. You know, this video of Oprah and Danielle Brooks and Fantasia and the director of this movie that's coming out on December 25th on atop of the Empire State Building. People are, you know, there are a lot of internet body language experts saying, you know, it looks like Taradi is fighting back her urge to cry and it looks like she may feel slighted by Oprah. It's like, what? You know, a lot of people are coming out talking about, you know, it'd be your own people. It'd be your own people. And we all know that Taraji Henson earned only 150k for her role in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uncle Sam gets half of that. Her team also gets 30% of that. And it's like, yeah. You know, people are like, you know, Taraji should shut up. She has a spotlight on her now. Ain't no telling if or when she'll have it again. So she's using this moment to highlight what she and other black women face in the industry. Applaud her courage instead of critiquing it. So there was in coming at Oprah, people highlight this video where they claim that she's shading Taraji. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Now I'll be the first to say, and I'll probably say it a couple times on this podcast, Oprah may have her faults, but it's not Oprah's place to save everybody. Let's say she did open up her her purse and write all of the all of the women and the director and the leads in the movie a million dollar check, a five million dollar check, a ten million dollar check a piece. You know, because a lot of people, there are still a lot of people, although we've informed and educated people on this, the difference between net worth and cash on hand. People honestly think that Oprah Winfrey, her net worth is exactly what she has in the the bank account just ready to use. Just because Forbes has them listed as a billionaire doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And while you are reaching, punching up at Oprah, Winfrey, and Tyler Perry, wondering how is it that they're making all this money from each movie, they made all this money during the course of their talk show, 
They have all this money coming in from their networks and their shows and their all this money coming in, but they're paying their their black cast a low ball, and it's like they have a production agreement contract. They have a lot of money that goes out to finance these projects. And more than likely, they're probably lowballing their their income so this production can go on, so this production can happen. But nobody factors any of that in. They just instantly think, oh, well, you've made it. Like, even in 2023, people are like, well, they've made it. They can make things happen for us. Why don't they? And it's like, even if she was to cut a check, even if Tyler Perry was to cut a check for all these people, they still have to come back and work. Like, they still have to come back in this industry, whatever industry that they work in, still have to play the game, still be part of the system. The conversation needs to be had between the actors and the studios. But even then, they're not entitled to anything. They're not entitled to... And I'm just saying this, this is what's probably going through the minds of the people on the other side of the table. You know, when it comes to being an actor or an actress, the amount of money you could negotiate to a certain amount, like your negotiating powers, how much you could make or be paid for this movie role is contingent upon the success or the past successes of your previous movies. And network television is a different ball game than movies. Like it's a numbers game. All of this is a numbers game. And people are tired, like, people are very, very tired. And while there is a part of me that's like, you know, you really should be in something you love for the love of it. There's also a part of me that's like, you you have control. You know, Taraji said she fired her team. When, you know, the cookie thing didn't work out. You know, there was supposed to be a talk about a spinoff at some point. That fell flat for whatever reason. So she had to go back to movies. Like, she still has to work. So from that, a discussion needs to be had about what are these people that you hired to work for you doing?
Like, it's so many, there's so much to unpack in these kind of situations. And, you know, people are punching up at black billionaires that weren't black billionaires all their lives. You know, because just like everybody else, they too worked to get to where they are. And in this generation where everybody feels entitled to know everything, these people do a lot of other things that you aren't even aware. You know, a little discernment, a little critical thinking goes a long way. To further support some of the points in this episode, The Art of Storytelling, Part 2, as to how even with Oprah's name attached to the project that's coming out on December 25th, the trials and tribulations that they still faced. So, The Hollywood Reporter, back on December the 12th, did an interview collectively of Fantasia, Taraji, Daniel Brooks, and Oprah Winfrey unpacking the cinematic heirloom that is this film and its its legacy. Why they were never going to land Beyonce and why so much is still riding on its success. Articles courtesy, like I said, of The Hollywood Reporter. Casa Mumbi Moody is the one that wrote this piece. So, I'm going to skim through it and go to the part where Oprah kind of chimes in. When the sag Afra strike dragged past Halloween into November, Oprah Winfrey started to get nervous. As a producer of the big-budget remake, she fretted about the possibility that her stars, including Coleman Domingo, Corey Hawkins, Halle Bailey, Gabriella Wilson, better known as her, wouldn't be able to promote the film. One of the reasons why I was praying, praying, praying that the strike would be over is because I so wanted this experience, the experience that I had with The Color Purple in my life, to be shared by all of these women, Winfrey tells The Hollywood Reporter, before tearing up. I thought, if the strike doesn't end, they will never get to have that ride, and there's nothing like that ride. There's nothing like being out in the world, being able to talk about it, and to share the beautiful energy of everything that Alice wanted when she wrote that story. It's like every time we speak, we get to talk the ancestors up, And so, there's not a person in this film who doesn't realize that the film is bigger than all of us. Winfrey talks about the divine in relation to her connection to the color purple frequently, describing it as life-changing on multiple fronts. When the book was first released and she read its first words about a young girl who's raped by her stepfather and gives birth to their children, it's mirrored her own life, having had a stillborn child as a result of a rape as a teen, a local talk show host in Chicago at the time, shared the movie was being made and was determined to play any role in the production, assuming it would be a non-acting one. But producer Quincy Jones saw her on local television and saw her out to audition for Sophia. Not everyone was as enthusiastic as Jones 
Winfrey recalls reaching out to casting director Reuben Canning after auditioning, with him currently telling her that he was the one who would be doing the calling, if she even got the job. He said, you know who just left my office? Alfre Watered. She's a real actress. You have no experience, so I thought for sure I was not going to get it. And I went to this retreat just to regroup myself to get over the fact that I wasn't going to get it, she recalls. Felt like, God, why did you do this? Why did you let me get this close? I was running around the track at this health retreat, which they call a fat farm at the time, praying and crying and singing, I surrender all. And the moment that I feel like I released it, a woman comes running out and says, there's a phone call for you. It was Cannon. He said, Steven Spielberg wants to see you in his office tomorrow. I hear you're at the fat farm, and if you lose a pound, you lose the part. Wow, that's a miracle. Winfrey's depiction of Sophia, her first on-screen acting role, not only led to her first Oscar nomination, but also set her up for the one-name icon status that she certain would not have happened had she not gotten the role. She credits visiting Spielberg's Amblin Studios with giving her the realization that she could have her own studio, leading to the birth of Harpo Productions. Even controlling her own talk show came from her Color Purple experience. Her bosses made her forfeit three years' vacation, yes, you read that right, in order to shoot the movie, and she vowed she would never be put in that position again. So she brought the rights to the Oprah Winfrey show, which ran for 29 media landscape being changing seasons. The role also led to a decades-long connection to the material. Twenty years after the original movie, producer Scott Sanders devised a plan for a musical rendition for Broadway, which Winfrey was initially opposed to. She eventually became a believer, so much so that she ended up coming aboard as executive producer of the Tony-winning production and its subsequent revival. But when, but when Sanders suggested turning it into a film, that's where Winfrey drew the line. For many years, I just thought, leave it alone. She says, maybe it was ego that I just felt like we've already done it, and I don't think you can do it any better. And now it is actually a classic. How are you going to improve on that? Then the Me Too movement happened. Suddenly, Winfrey could see a new reason to bring the color purple to a new audience. Sanders started saying, don't you feel that there's something with the energy of what's happening to women in this movement? Maybe it's time to go to Stephen again, she recalls. So I called up Stephen and he said yes. Spielberg, like Winfrey, had been opposed to a film adaptation of the musical, adaptation of the original movie. But when Saunders was pitching, in his view, was so much more than a remake or even what the musical had been, a version that, while hewing to the original story, reshapes its vision. Obviously, Stephen's film lives in the culture and, and is a classic. No one would ever want to remake his movie, Sanders said. But with the help of screenwriter Marcus Gardley, a new vision emerged. What if the brutal abuse of Seely isn't the core focus of the film, and instead it explores Seely's imagination, an imagination that shows her hopes, dreams, and her own agency? That new vision was led in part by detect- director Blitz Buzzawale, who made his feature debut with the burial, the burial of Kojo, but perhaps it's best known as the co-director of Beyonce's eye-popping Blackest King, a fantastical, visually stunning retelling of The Lion King. The biggest thing was, what can we say that hasn't been said yet? That was, for me, the hardest part. I went back to Alice Walker's book. This was on her first page. And the first line, Dear God, that for me was, all right, that's the line. Anyone can write letters to God must have an imagination, Bazawale says. And that's imaginative, plain, 
became the place in which we're going to justify our reason for being. It's that vision that lured Barino to the project after initially telling Sanders no. When Blitz gave her an imagination, that for me was perfect, says Barino, who received raise when she stepped into the role of Celia on Broadway nearly 15 years ago. The experience remains a dark time of Barino's memory. The third season American Idol champ was a platinum selling star but had never performed such a grueling schedule of eight shows a week. More critical, however, was her emotional state. Barino, who gave birth to her first child as a teen, had gone through her own trauma that in some ways mirrored Seely's. I recall interviewing a subdued Barino at the time, and she noted how the material was affecting her psyche. I'm being told every day that I'm ugly. You can't play that part if you don't put yourself in her shoes and live her life. So I carry that stuff with me, says Barino today. I probably would have continued to say no if Bazawali did not get her an imagination. Because even though Celie went through so many traumatic things at a young, young age, even though her sister Nettie seemed to get the better end of things and Celie was handed the worst, in her imagination she shows how she's made it through all of that. While others had played Celia on Broadway, including Cynthia Erivo, and still others lobbied for the role, for Bazawale, Barino was the only choice. I was looking for someone who embodied the spirit and the soul of the character and had the emotional depth to reach there. And also had a powerful voice. Bazawale says it was very clear that Fantasia had a well and depth of experience, personal and emotional, and the ability to reach into it. It was more or less finding a kindred spirit in somebody who had a deep well. Somebody who was going to interrogate the character deeply. Nobody could have done it better than Fantasia, and certainly not in this iteration. Winfrey felt the same about Brooks, who was Tony nominated and earned a Grammy for her turn as Sophia in the Broadway revival of The Color Purple in 2015. In a brilliant bit of viral movie marketing, Winfrey taped her call to Brooks, who burst into tears before the words could get out that she'd nabbed the role and put it on social media. Danielle, my God, I knew from day one, Winfrey says. I felt that one of the fun moments was being able to call her, because I obviously had watched her on Broadway. There were other people, but she embodied it. It's a character that has long taken up space in Brooks' spirit. I'm going to skim through that part. Discouraged but not defeated, she asked James Gunn, her director on the Peacemaker set, for his advice. He was like, yes, you should definitely shoot your shot. I remember having a long conversation with him about faith and trust in the process, so I wrote a letter to say, hey, I love this part, and even if I'm not your Sophia, I wish this project well. I didn't hear anything back, which was like, okay, that's part of the trust in the process, she recalls. Gonna skim through... Winfrey acknowledges the pressure to ensure a hit. To have been completely honest about it, if you were doing this film for 30 or 40 million, the interest in the cast would be very different. Once the film moved to 90 to 100 million, then everybody wants, to, wants us to bring in Beyonce, she says. Can you get Beyonce or can you get Rihanna? So we're sitting in the room saying, listen, we love Beyonce, we love Rihanna, but there are other actors who can do this job. I do remember conversations about y'all, Beyonce is going to be busy this year. It wasn't even a negotiation because you're not getting Beyonce. Winfrey's name may seem synonymous with unlimited resources, but she notes there were times when the producing trio had to go to Warner Brothers to request more money to get everything right. I would have to say that Warner Brothers co-chairs 
Pam Abdi and Mike DeLuca really got it from the first time they saw the film and understood they heard me and heard Steven and heard the team when we said, this is the reason why this has to be done, she says. You have to give us more money to do this because this is a cultural manifesto in a way for our community. Deserves to have the support that needs, that's needed to make it what it needs to be. There was also an understanding about who would be needed to helm the project. Even before Bazawali was in the running, they knew whoever was in charge of the film would have to be a person of color, the lack of which was problematic for the original. Winfrey recalls that the NAACP first demanded to see the script, and when refused, publicly came out against the film over concerns and negative depictions of black men, with significant upset over Spielberg being the one bringing the messaging to the world. At the time, I was just mad at the NAACP. How dare you all try to spoil this moment for all of us who work so hard, especially Alice Walker, says Winfrey. Our response was, this is one story. It's not the story of every black man. I was upset that they were doing it, but I would not let it affect any of my joy of the experience of being part of it. There was nothing you could say to me about the color purple because what, because of what all that experience meant. It was life-altering, enhancing, expanding. Rebecca Walker, Alice Walker's daughter and producer on this film, was a 15-year-old gopher on the first, recalls the vitriol that came before and after the original's release, leading all the way to the movie's 11 Oscar nominations, and its complete shutout and wins. My mind really suffered, said Walker. She took all the criticism very personally. She felt that she had done her best, not just by Celia and Shook, but by Mr. and all the men in that book, and all the men in her life. Alice Walker recalls leaving for Bally to reset and says she never regretted the choice of Spielberg as director. It just never occurred to me. It seems really absurd to call someone racist when someone says, oh, I'd love this and I would do everything I can to make something you love too. Had it not been for Spielberg, Winfrey believes the film would have never been made. She says Spielberg knew the optics around his helming the feature. He took the heat for that and it was scary for him. He said Quincy asked him to do it and should be a person of color, and Quincy said I'm here and it's going to be you. Winfrey recalls, I still think it is classic and extraordinary in terms of what Stephen was able to do with that piece of work. When he took on The Color Purple, Spielberg was already an acclaimed blockbuster director. But when Bazawale, also a musician who goes by the name Blitz the Ambassador, set out to direct the remake, he had directed only one feature, but Winfrey and Saunders were quickly convinced that the 40-year-old While Nanian was the only choice at the helm, Saunders was worried that his lack of experience might impede a green light from Warner Brothers. These companies are mammoth and profit-driven and very often accused of not being friends of the creative process, the producer says. The final pitch, the final interview for Blitz to get approved and hired. We had a Zoom and it was Blitz, Oprah, the Warner Brothers executives, Toby Emmerich, Courtney Valenti, and me. Toby did something that was so remarkable, gracious, and atypical for what most people think about Hollywood executives. He looked at Blitz at the very top of the Zoom and said, I know you think this is your final hurdle to get this job, but if Oprah and Steven and Scott and Quincy think you're the director, then you're the director. You've got the job. Just tell me the movie you want to make. Working with a screenplay by Garley, Bazawali made the movie his own by infusing it with magical realism. As Winfrey describes it, going inside Celia's imagination includes dreamy moments with Shug, whose romantic relationship is more fleshed out than the chastised kiss in the original, and song and dance number, as which allows herself to dream of a place away from the brutal world that Mister has created for her. 
Then there's The Evolution of Mister, played by Domingo, the original with his villainous ways, so expertly depicted by Danny Glover. The character's redemption doesn't come until the near end of the movie as an old man finally having regrets about his conduct towards Sealy. Like in the book, the musical version, the new color purple invests much more in the redemption arc, a change Alice Walker appreciates deeply, something that Bazawale Garley added to the film. I think it's just felt really good to have a black man directing, and not just because he's a black man, but because he's hugely talented, and also a black young man to do the screenplay, says Walker, because I want people to see what we're trying to evolve in our relationships with each other. hope that this evolution in this sense is helpful to people. Other changes made to the new version, violence against Sealy is more inferred than shown, and the famous line Shook says to Sealy when they first meet, you sure as ugly as never uttered. It didn't work in mine because of levels in the investment in the narrative around sisterhood. There's certain things you can't come back from. Sealy and Shook Avery's relationship would not recover from that, says Bazawale. Within the vessel of the color purple lies an infinite world, and our job is to figure out what to harness for the audience. We were unafraid to go, okay, that's not making it, and to also go, that's needed, but it's not in here. We need to add that. My hope and prayer is that it is a deep benefit to the audience today, and that they can see a reflection of themselves. So there you have it. So even with Oprah's name attached to the project, and Quincy's name, and Stephen's name attached to it, still had to go through the stakeholder engagement, production, financing process like every other film. And even with knowing all of that, people still have space to come at Oprah crazy. To the point that Taraji had to come out and clarify. You know, after, you know, saying what she had to say during the interview, the clips that we played earlier, even after, you know, the body language experts felt like Oprah was icing out Taraji. And it's like there on the top floor of the Empire State Building probably one of the coldest days in the coldest months of the year and Oprah is very supportive and encouraging essentially as they're assembling for a group photo made it a point to push Danielle all the other ladies next to Taraji and highlight them more and she's at the opposite end of the group photo from the director who's at one end and the ladies are in between them. But again, now I'm not a big Oprah fan, but I'm not blind. Like we know what's going on. I just wish other people would join the fray. Nevertheless, when the Color Purple goes through its selected theaters run and is pushed into worldwide release into other theaters. We'll be sure to go down to our local movie theater and catch The Color Purple. I'm still going. 
if there's nothing else that you learned from this episode, when we talk about perception and uh, bias and how we come together as a collective to continue to bash one person or target one person in defense of another person with no consideration of process and contracts and business. Yeah, I think this is this is where we are right now. And it's no fault to the pandemic. If anything, the pandemic revealed a lot of things. It empowered a lot of people to express themselves probably out of sheer mania. But Mr. Fox of the IFE's podcast, hey, how you doing? I can't help but think and ponder and reflect on the human condition sometimes and what our value system is and where our priorities lie. And do we really value women and do we value relationships? You know, like I said, Oprah really, while she makes or is worth a lot of money, you know, being worth a lot of money doesn't necessarily entitle you to make executive decisions in a venue or an environment like film and film production. Now, you could suggest to the executives at studios, you know, we should probably make sure that everybody is paid equally. But just like any piece of legislation, there's a process that that has to go through. And there's nothing that says that Warner Brothers or other Hollywood studios has to, to do that. You know, when people sign to unions or become part of SAG or the writers' unions and all that other stuff, the union is there to fight and advocate for all these folks. And when that doesn't happen or the other party, people start to realize, oh, you know, the studios and all these other parties are trying to get even more money out of our performances and our likeness and cutting us out even more. That's what leads to advocating and protesting. Like, it's it's not that hard. But when we just skip all of that and go directly to who we perceive to be the most powerful person in the equation, I can see why, you know, Oprah doesn't answer our voicemails. Oprah doesn't come outside. The most that Oprah has probably done the last year or so is keep up those Soul Sunday things and those uh, Apple Plus interviews in front of a green screen because... Y'all, y'all are doing the absolute most. 
and further taking the magic away from this movie that's coming out on the 25th. Just my two cents. Before I get up out of here, I want to actually further expound upon my earlier segment about Sheila Dixon. I want to first pose a question to anybody that's listening to the Art of Storytelling Part 2. How is it that successful women, women of impact, women of influence, end up in these kind of relationships that are showing slips of domestic turmoil, um, domestic problems, significant amounts of stress, you know, from the clip I had earlier in the episode, the quality of her voice is so hoarse. And Sheila Dixon, aside from, you know, all the stress and all the um, drama that came from being blackballed and being iced out of office, iced out of a an industry or a job that that's pretty much all you've known. And that's probably the most high profile position you'll ever have in your life. Like the stress from that, you know, things have died down. You're trying to stage a comeback and turn over a new leaf, start a new chapter of trust with the city People are realizing that in the five or so years that you've been gone, Baltimore has been in a sunken place for a long time. And a lot of us are coming to the realization that it really wasn't all that bad. You know, the the gift cards and stuff. But during your campaign or during your era of trying to return to the political front, and represent the city again. You have your boyfriend, your husband, your partner, whatever. Essentially frightening you. While you're live on the morning news. During an interview. You're flinching. As you're talking. In a very, very hoarse voice. At some point, things are starting to get thrown at you, clothes, one piece, and then later on, a handful of clothes, to the point that your camera falls down off of the computer, and you have fear in your eyes, and your hair is messed up, and you have all the fear in your eye all over your face. Like, when when do we start asking, you know, women that we know, successful women, when do we pick up, you know, the flags and the signs and everything? And not even, like, successful, but just when we're working with people, working alongside people that we just don't ask or become curious Like, you know, this generation of 
signifying and being, you know, entitling oneself to other people's business and being of the mindset and the attitude that other people owe you something from their private life. Just just for likes and engagement, yet we're doing the mute challenge when it comes to stuff like this. Now, since that has come out, since, you know, that's played out in the morning news and gathered steam on TikTok and social media, you know, Sheila Dixon has released a statement in response to the alarming situation that played out oh you know everything's just fine you know don't be worried yada 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 hmm how about that anyway i'm gonna get up out of here so i can get started on my uh christmas eve dinner preparation you know I'm a real cook, you know, I don't get the apple pie filling and the sweet potato pie filling. I actually cut up the potatoes and the apples and do the filling myself and season the the, the meat, <laughs> the turkey, the chicken and all that. Do the collard greens myself, do the stuffing myself, stuff the chicken with the stuffing, the whole shebang-a-bang. I'm going to have Christmas Eve dinner at my place with my boothang and, uh, be on the lookout for a new episode by the usual suspects coming out before Monday, before Christmas. You know, the grind doesn't stop. In the meantime, check out other episodes of the I Refuse podcast, season five, season four, season three, season two, and the inaugural season, season one. We also have the YouTube channel. We also have the I Refuse podcast after dark. Season two is coming in January. Till then, stay warm, stay blessed, stay merry. Happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa to all that celebrate. And we will catch you guys later.